Welcome to Preview of the Partially Examined Life, Episode 255, Part 2 on Sun Tzu's The Art of War. We've already given a general overview of the text, skipping around to different parts, and then we zoomed into a close textual analysis. We here picked that up with Chapter 3 out of 13. I'm going to play you three clips from near the beginning of that discussion that get into why Sun Tzu thinks you need to wage war at all, how to do so most successfully causing the least damage, and we also talked about how Sun Tzu's advice can be applied or not to business matters. The expert in deploying troops will humble the enemy without ever engaging them in battle. He will take their cities without ever attacking and topple the ruling house without protracted engagements. For always, when contending in the realm, success means keeping yourself whole. So this was a big deal in the Iraq War, which I was there twice. And it was identifying the enemy's center of gravity, which we identified as Baghdad. And there was a big kind of discussion afterwards about, was this the way to go? And there was a big critique of the maneuverists took over and we should have just slogged down a conventional war and yada, yada, yada. But then if you look at the first line there in chapter three, in general, the way to deploy troops is this, to take the enemy state whole as ideal, less than ideal is breaking the state up, to take their army whole as ideal, less than ideal is breaking the army up. To take a battalion of the expeditionary force, a regiment, a five-man squad intact is less than ideal, is breaking unit up. For this reason, winning 100 victories in 100 battle is not the best possible outcome, which is exactly what we ended up doing uh, or trying to do instead of just keeping the army intact. So you read this stuff after the fact and you just kind of slam your head against the desk going, what were we doing? So best is to subdue the enemy's troops without ever engaging them on the battlefield. Then he says, best in war is to target their strategies, then their alliances, and then their troops. The least desirable option is to attack a fortified city. Seeing alliances, that's why I interpreted some of this as political stuff. Brian, I think it says in chapter nine, something about discipline only the troops that you control. So if you're, if the issue in Iraq was, can we just basically take out the leadership and then keep the entire army intact? Are those folks going to be loyal to the new regime, right? Isn't that a big thing? As opposed to you're saying what they actually did is like just kick out all the Bathists out of government, out of the military, break it up. And so that it would be only, I don't know if it was just the Shiites or who the loyalists that would be left. This is cryptic, right? He's connecting the idea of taking an army whole and taking a state whole to the idea of subduing the enemy's troops without ever engaging them on the battlefield. I think once you've made the decision to go to war, to actually use force, I think you do some breaking up, right? Inevitably. One particular thing that's missing is that there isn't anything about why you would be fighting the war. Why? <laughs> I was just about to make that point. <laughs> but you have to kind of take this as a strange presumption to start with that you have to fight a war for some reason because fighting war doesn't make any sense. There is no logical if A, then fight a war because from a virtue ethic standpoint, from a rationality standpoint, it just doesn't really make sense. And, you know, we just spent a bunch of time. We just did a 10 part series on the education of Cyrus by Xenophon and combat classics. And there's a lot of grand, like, this is why we're doing it. And this is why it's important. And at the end of the day, it's really just like, I want to get these people's tax revenue. And it's wrapped up in kind of duty, honor, courage or whatever. But it seems like at the end of the day, at least in the ancient world, it was like, well, we want these farmers and lords to pay us instead of paying the other guy. So you have to kind of either just ignore that <laughs> as a facet of warfare. Otherwise, it'll drive you crazy. Well, you know, it's the war in states period. It's just it's what they do. It's what they were doing at the time. I don't know if this was in the reading, the Combs reading, but some of the background reading I did. This war was ubiquitous 
and the survival of your state depended on it. You couldn't do without it. And apropos of this, the rulers who run their kingdom, for all the reasons that you just mentioned, Brian, they want tax revenue. The business of their kingdom is falling. And so they're going to go and they're going to either be ambitious and try to expand their wealth or they need some money. So they're going to try to get some more resources. And so their ability to have an army is part of the tool chest for doing that. But that's why this whole business about the commander not obeying the ruler seems important here, right? Because the commander is an expert being deployed by the rulers asking them to do things, but the ruler isn't the one who's telling them how to do it. Well, and you could see it's not even just, I want you to accomplish this, but I'm not going to tell you how. If the ruler is like, I want that area. I want to be in control of this part of the map. And it's sort of thinking at that level then the commander might just say, look, this is at least not the time. The conditions are not right. We're not going to succeed. We're going to waste a lot of money. So no. Is that a ruler choice or is that a general choice? Well, I mean, ultimately the ruler, right, sets the larger objective, you know, defeating the enemy or even taking some geographic area. But I think what Mark is saying is that he can't tell you when to do it and how to do it. And, you know, it's up to the general to decide when when it's feasible. Yep. Maybe we need to get more alliances together. Maybe we need to, you know, do all these other things. We can't just lay siege to the capital. We need to get the populace on our side first. In many of these business things, you don't have a mental entity that you're actively engaged with that is also conniving against you. And so the activity of deception requires an engagement like that, where you have someone to fool. The exception might be is you have a direct competitor you know, you're going to launch the iPhone and you're keeping it under wraps. Exactly. And, so you, and so you're going to have some alternate marketing out there, plant out some buzz about what you're working on to distract your competitors from the fact that you have this game-changing technology that you need to get up to a certain point so you can just come in with overwhelming force. I mean, that would be the closest analogy of the use of deception. But like in the COVID and stuff like that, I mean, COVID isn't plotting against you. COVID's like the weather. I feel like maybe if you're like a certain businessman going to go to big banks when you are seriously underwater and vastly overstate your current holdings so that they will give you more money, that is using deception when you're weak to... uh yeah, but that's fraud. Yeah, that's not to vanquish your enemy, right? <laughs> no, exactly. It's hard to draw an analogy in every circumstance here, but you have to think about in business competition, there has to be a market. It's customers or land or resources or something like that. You have to make an analogy between the material objective of the campaign, of the military campaign, which is to either gain land or gain access to resources or gain access to a warm water port or something along those lines. I mean, I have to say, when I was reading this, it made perfect sense to me in the world that I live in, which is tech. I live in the world of what's called business to business or enterprise technology. So my company makes technology that we sell to other large companies to manage their IT business. In the space that we're in, for some of our solutions, there's really one significant competitor. There's a very close analogy between the military metaphor. And in some cases, we have a very fragmented market that we're competing in. And there's many, many, many competitors. And I think where I saw analogies there was when he was talking about the lords. You're passing through the lands and the lords have their own little 
So the profitable way for me to translate this or to think about this is you have to think about what the objective is that you're trying to accomplish. And it's not just vanquishing the enemy. There's some reason. You have some political goal to vanquish the enemy. It's to gain access to resources or to prevent a threat or to do something. And when you start thinking in those terms, then you can make the market analogy that I just described. If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminelife.com slash support and sign up for membership either on our site or on patreon.com slash partiallyexaminelife. Thanks for listening.